and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great conversation. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like emotional intelligence, leadership, teamwork, communication, all that good stuff that really helps organizations thrive, when you label those competencies as soft, it devalues and minimizes the importance of those skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which we will talk about in today's conversation. And my book came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, and you want to go a little bit deeper into the shift your mind concept, please check out the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased. And I really have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand the reach of the podcast. Thanks again to all of you who continue to support us at the podcast. We have grown tremendously since we first started it, and each of you are a big reason why. Thank you, thank you, thank you for continuing to share and spread these intentional performers with the world. And now to today's guest. Coach Mike Deegan is the head baseball coach at Denison University, where he has coached for the past 10 years. Coach has had tremendous success at the Division Three level when it comes to baseball. He has won three, that's right, three national championships at that level. And he's also played in two national championships as a player. So coach is going to talk about what his experience was like as a player and playing for an elite program back then. And he'll also talk about what it takes to build an elite program at Denison. So he is big into curiosity. He is big into humility. And this conversation also gets into some vulnerability. It gets into some of the things that might get in the way for a coach and how that has held him back at times in both his playing career and his coaching career. So this conversation is going to dive deep into leadership and culture. And so with that, I'm excited to present to you Coach Mike Deegan. Coach, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to fire up the mics and share with the world some of the conversations that we've had privately. So uh, this will be a lot of fun. And it's interesting. I was talking to Joe Ferraro, uh, a friend of both of ours, right before this. We were talking about something. And I said, hey, what, what do you think I should ask coach? And he said, I really think you should dig into humility with him. Humility is something that he talks about a lot. 
Uh, and I said, okay, great. And, and then Joe, who, who knows about my book and how I think about things said to me, yeah, cause I'd be curious about coach. Like, what about arrogance? Like, how does that play? Um, and then sure enough, as we were talking before we hit the record button, you said, Brian, I got two words on my wall right now for this conversation and it's impact and arrogance. So tell me a little bit about why you chose those two words for today. Yeah. You know, I, I've, um, I don't know why, but as far as the arrogance piece, I, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Brian. I've been a, a big fan and big fan of yours. So this is a big honor for me, but uh, you know, it's, it's uh, humility has come really natural to me. So a lot of times um, I, and I was, I was actually getting ready to say, uh, please don't take this the wrong way. I don't want to come off arrogant. I was getting ready to say it, but I stopped, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's been very natural for me. So a lot of times people will say, Hey, you need to read Adam Grant's book on intellectual humility or, and I do, and I don't, I don't mean this in offense to Adam. I get the, his books are great, but they don't hit me because it's kind of natural for me. Um, but I do have concerns that I get into certain rooms or in certain spaces or even in competition. And I don't portray the confidence or the arrogance taken to the next level that I need to, to really thrive. And for a while, you know, I, I make fun of people who are arrogant, but what I would secretly do is I try to surround myself with arrogant people, you know, and I didn't know it, but I think that's what I was doing because that's what I was missing. And so I envy people that are like that, uh, but I've been beat over in my head my whole life to be humble that I do think it affects my performances. How so? I just don't think, you know, I'll, I'll give a horrible example, but high school basketball, I remember being in a defensive stance and worrying how I looked. Like I worried about, I, I don't know, I felt like, you know, I felt like I had a ton of eyes on me instead of just being in the moment and playing, right? And and so much so, you know, I, I was watching a, the Steeler game a couple of weeks ago and they're getting their, the doors blown off of them. And a guy breaks up a pass and he flexes down like 30 points and Twitter goes crazy. Why would you do that? You're getting beat. And I started thinking about it. No, he's in a performance mode right now. Like it doesn't matter if he's up 30 or down 30, like he's competing and he's in the moment. And I don't think I ever got there as a competitor, like when I was actually the one playing, but then as a, as a coach, I still think how, how I model, even, even if I, they, they can feel that, even if I don't, you know, say I'm nervous or whatever, they can feel that. So I, I, for years, I don't, I didn't think our teams played their best late and I had to chin check myself and say, you know, what is it? And I think it, you have to at least at first look at yourself as a coach and say, how is my behavior affecting our team's performance? A couple of things to just point out. Number one, arrogance can be flexing, but it also can be quiet. Uh, it doesn't have to be outward. It can be inner arrogance, so to speak. Um, and then two, let's just make sure we're speaking the same language. The way I define arrogance is an exaggerated belief in myself. And for me, when I'm performing and I'm trying to execute something, confidence, I think, doesn't go far enough. I need to have this exaggerated sense because when we're performing, we make mistakes and we're going to screw up, whether we swing and we miss or we let up a home run. You know, I'm in Washington, D.C., so like Max Scherzer is the guy or was the guy when it came to he would give up a home run, but you'd see him back on the rubber and still in that bulldog mind. And so I think when we're performing, we don't have the luxury of of letting ourselves go out of that performance mind. And if we do, we can find ourselves into that preparation mind that I like to call it. And that's where the humility can come in. And for me, what I talk about in the book is that confidence, it actually takes great confidence to be humble. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that humility has come easier, natural to you probably has to do with some nature and some nurture. And I know, I think you've told stories about your dad and instilling humility into you from a young age. Well, it takes great confidence to say, Hey, I don't know everything yet. Like that actually takes ridiculous confidence um, in oneself, but it also takes a lot of confidence to say, nope, I'm the right person for the job, even if I haven't seen the result yet today or in this season or in this game, still I'm the one that should be in the batter's box in this moment. I'm the one who wants the ball. I mean, Scherzer, we can just stay on the amount of conversations he's, he's had with coaches as they come out to take him out. He always wants the ball. And that's where you need to be a great manager and say, you know what? I know you do. I appreciate you, but our team needs you to give me the ball right now. And you would see him, he'd be like, okay. And he gives him the ball and he comes off. Um, but when he's in that mode, you're, he, he has, 
he worked on it. He, he struggled early in his career because he gave up a lot of home runs and he talked about shifting his mind to letting go of those home runs. And sometimes you're going to make a great pitch and you're going to face a great hitter. And sometimes they're going to beat you. So that's how I think about it. It's unshakable belief in myself. It's an exaggerated sense of myself when I'm between the lines. And since I've read that chapter, I've said that now I want to be more arrogant and the response people give you is like, uh-huh. well, they don't love that word. And, and, you know, I've had to tell myself that um, being humble has, has served me very well. Like it, it, it makes me relatable. Um, people enjoy me for the most part, it, but now I, I have found myself in rooms. So, you know, the Scherzer's on the mound now that I'm 43 years old, I have found myself in rooms where I'm humble and I'm listening, I'm curious and all these things that we talk about, but there is like this small moment where I would probably be the expert and I, I don't throw myself in the arena. And to me, that's where humility can be hedging almost. Cause I'm, that's, that's a little bit of fear. And this is me talking. I don't, I don't know the exact words, but it, I, I've kind of had to come to grips and, and say, Hey, that's fear. Like you, you had a window there where you were the expert, like you, you weren't the expert for the whole 60 minute conversation, but for maybe five or six minutes, it was yours. And so that's where I want to be better this year. I just, I just know that I've worked really hard over my lifetime to, to learn and grow and, and, and to collaborate. But when those moments arrive, I, I want to take it from confidence to a place of arrogance, unshakable belief, as you said, and step in that arena and let it go. Isn't it amazing? I can even hear your discomfort saying that word out loud. We are, we are told that it is a bad word. And I understand that. And arrogance gets in the way for so many people. And if you're going to be a leader of men, there is absolutely tremendous value in being humble and curious and asking great questions and learning from your guys and learning from your staff. And you are the head honcho. They're looking for you to tell them when they have to bunt, when they have to steal, when they have to come out of the game and you're going to put a lefty in to play the matchups. You have to make those decisions. And there's a lot of ownership that comes with those decisions. And with arrogance comes the reality of when it's done, when you screw up, you have to say, hey, I was wrong. But a lot of people don't even put themselves in those situations to own it because they were still deferring. It's, it's kind of like leadership to me. We always say, oh, you got to lead by example. Okay, yes, that's part of leadership. But also part of leadership is vocal. It, it has to be. Now, it doesn't have to be screaming and yelling all the time. But if you're not a vocal person you're not leading. You're not like it. It has to be more than just leading my example. It can't just be doing the right thing. It also involves saying something, confronting people, challenging, um, you know, there's, it, that is also a part of leadership. Uh, so, so it's interesting though, to me, because your journey though, it's not like you're some slouch. I, I mean, as a player, I think you went to two NCAA championships. So you've been on teams and you've performed well. And then as a coach, you've won three NCAA national championships. I'm curious for you, did those teams that you were a part of that excelled, did they have collective arrogance when they got on the diamond to compete? What did you notice about your players uh, in those situations on those elite championship level teams? I would say without a doubt, those, 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 uh, our teams are first of all really talent laden. You know, like we had it's, it's Division three baseball. We had four or five pros. We had as many pros that year as Ohio State did. So, wow. you know, it, it's really really good talented players. I mean, our shortstop was uh, he was the fastest guy in the Cubs organization. Though to kind of scale it, right? Like sometimes you think small college baseball, then you throw him in to you know the pros. Uh, the best way I heard him describe, someone said he looked like an ACC player doing a rehab stint. You know, that's, <laughs> so he looked just looked different. So. Yeah, there's no doubt at, at Marietta College that time. I mean, you trained really hard, like your preparation mind, as you would you know, talk about it, was was just next level. But when you went out there and, and Coach Shelley, the, the guy I played for, I played for a legend and I worked for a guy who will be a legend. Um, you know, his, his phrase was, uh, uh, what was it? Humble off the field, but pricks between the line. You know, that, that oh, was kind sorry, of what was it between the lines? It was pricks like people you know pricks. like pricks like you, you do everything you can within the rules to win the game wow. and it was it was really aggressive like an aggressive coaching style and and our guys it was earned confidence I think one thing that people would always say playing Marietta is that they beat the crap out of you and then they feed you hot dogs afterwards so there it was there was truly that that culture that ethos of 
we're competing, but afterwards they shake your hands. And so I, I think that was all part of the DNA there. And then you couple that with really good talent. And, and I think that's how you get some magic. Any other qualities that you notice? I know it's not just your teams. You love studying other teams, other sports, anything you notice as far as what championship culture looks like or what it sounds like or what it feels like? I think there's some themes and, and, you know, culture to me, like I, it's become such a buzzword in some ways, but I, I feel my air, my air gets here coming out that I can go watch and study and, and you can see culture, you know, whether it's Villanova basketball or New England Patriots or the Golden State Warriors now, New York Yankees, everyone has that culture, but it's, it's through observation. I think the big thing that I would say is that they're very clear in who they are. I think they're, I think you're very, very clear. And there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. All those examples I just gave you, they're completely different. Steve Kerr is way different than Bill Belichick, right? Nick Saban's very, very different than, than Bill Belichick. But at the core, they know who they are. Um, and I think you see those things that you talk about. I mean, I think there's there's a humility as they prepare and there's they, they understand they have to earn every win regardless of who they are or what's across their, their jersey. But at the end of the day, when they step on the field, they're ready to go. So I think those are some of your common threads. We go a little bit deeper there, but – I do think there's multiple different ways to do it, but at the end of the day, they're very, very clear in who they are and they lean into those values. Let's stay on that thread for a minute. It's interesting. I, I think of Pete Carroll and Bill Belichick as being two of the most successful coaches in football over the last 20 years. And the way they go about doing it is so, so different. Carroll's upbeat. He's trying to develop them as humans. He's an optimist. You know, he's on the sideline bopping around, fist bumping, you know, highly emotive. Whereas Belichick is more stoic. Um, you know, their slogan is do your job. Uh, it is not necessarily to develop people. It's to develop football players. Uh, and even there was um, one of the Bennett brothers, I forget which one it was, went from Seattle to New England and said, gosh, I love it in New England. They just tell me where to go, do my job. And then I go home, earn my paycheck. Let's go win a bunch of games. So I think about transactional and transformational leadership. And for those that don't know, transformational leadership is where I'm trying to develop human beings and I want them to be their best as humans. Transactional is more along the lines of do your job. And that doesn't mean that Belichick, for example, doesn't care about his players. He may, I, I don't know him. Um, and it doesn't mean that Carol, for example, doesn't care about them doing their job as well, but that transactional and transformational leadership, is there one that resonates more with you that you lean into more so um, for your job? I would definitely say transformational. Now, no, that that's, but once I, I think it's the same shift your mind. I, I, I think it's the same, the same qualities and you alluded to it, but we also want to win, right? And and there are some transactional moments. Like there, there, there just are. You know, I like I said, I don't want to put myself on a pedestal, but I, I tend look, I, I coach small college baseball. Very few, if any, will go on to make a living through playing the game. A lot of our guys will go on to the front office and things like that. So I mean, to me, it, it is the life lessons that are learned through sports. And that's, you know, kind of been the theme that I wrote a, a newsletter under and everything else. And I, I truly believe that. But with that being said, I really believe for me that the sweet sauce is, is when you're trying to relentlessly pursue a shared purpose, like just, and, and going all in on that. Like that's, that to me is where, uh, cause I, I think for myself and for some others, like that's where a lot of learning takes place. So there are going to be some transactional moments. I mean, we're, we're going to play our best players, even if someone's, you know, I, I don't know, they don't quite buy into some of the things we do. If they, exhibit that they can help us win we're going to go in that direction so anyways i i don't want to come off and put it on a pedestal but i i for me like what fills me up the most where i think i can make the most impact is by trying to be a transformational coach and and preparing them for things outside of sport it's interesting because in your sport at the major league level one of the best organizations over the last decade was the san francisco giants with bruce bochi and i don't know bochi and maybe you do or you're in that world but I was always struck by his whole thing was we're just playing the best players and I don't care what you're making. I don't care how long you've been in the league. And I was in San Francisco when they won their first world series and they had Barry Zito, not even like active. And they had, I think it might've been, was it Sandoval? I think it was Sandoval who was this young superstar. They're like, Nope, we're playing. I think it was Juan Uribe. Like they, they he, he legitimately, every decision was like, nope, we're going to put the best people out that are playing. 
And as a result, I think his guys respected him because they knew like he, his number one thing, his purpose was we are, we're in the business of winning games. And our job is to put the best guys out that we think can help us win. And we don't care what your pedigree or your salary is. And, and it sounds so simple, but a lot of coaches don't do that. A lot of coaches will say, nope, we got to play the young guys or this guy has potential or this guy's making this much money and we don't want to rock the boat and get them upset. Um, I see you having a desire to jump in here. So I'm going to let you jump in, but I'm going to bring it back afterwards. I have a question off of this, but what are your thoughts about that, that way of thinking? But to me, that is transformational because mm. honestly, it's, it's a lot harder. It's, it's, it's harder, but it, it crystallizes everything. It makes it clear. If I'm just playing the best players, then it takes away any other outside noise. Um, you know, I, I love sports. Like why I love sports is because when the ball goes in the air or the umpire says play ball, color of skin, religion, socioeconomic status, none of that matters. And the only way like I feel as a steward of sport that I need to hold on to that. Like in, and so it only, it has to be about the best players. It does. If not, then I'm, I'm, I'm becoming judgmental on other things. And where does that end? You know, so Boach, I think that's, it's, it's, it is transformational. It, that doesn't mean that you don't love up the person that's not playing or, the, or you don't value the heck, at them, heck out of them. But at the end of the day, I, I just think that's just, it just clarifies so much to me. Well, the amazing thing was, I think it was two years later, they won another World Series and Zito was spectacular. And Sandoval, I think, had four home runs in a game and like tied a record for that. So your point, it's like, yeah, we're going to play the, the, our best players and we still need you. We believe in you. Um, you know, we just, we got, got to go with this guy right now. It's not personal and we're going to love you up and, and keep you going. And it, have you ever been in a situation where you didn't do that, where you let some external factor dictate who was in the lineup and you maybe um lost some of the guys in the locker room as a result of maybe some external factor? I don't think, I don't think, I can't think of a, of a, a direct um, moment like that, but I'm sure I have, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, we, we've had, I think for me, not so much that, but I've had, I think sometimes you get feedback from a lot of people, assistant coaches, and sometimes I've went away from my gut on, on things that I probably should have leaned into more. There's such a, I mean, there's such a dance right now between, science and data and just your gut feeling instincts. And, uh, and you can probably size me up already. You can probably tell I'm more of an artist. I'm more of a feel person. And I've went away from that sometimes and I've kicked myself there. And I wonder if our locker room has felt that I don't, and maybe this is something I can, I can work on in the future. Maybe I need to ask that question. Did I, did I, you know, how did that decision impact the group? But I can't think of a time because it, it is such a big part of me from my time at Marietta. Like Marietta was a win culture. It was, we were going to win. It's, that's part of how I was raised in collegiate athletics was that. So I don't, I don't feel like I've ever done it as far as like I played someone because I know their dad or anything, but I have, I'm sure lost trust in a locker room for sure. For sure. Let's talk about analytics because baseball was obviously the leader there uh, with Moneyball and it's, it's well-documented. But now we see NBA completely transform. They're shooting threes and layups, trying to get to the foul line. We see NFL teams going for two, uh, going for it on fourth down. Uh, so we see analytics and data really driving a lot of decision-making. Being in this baseball world for the time that you've been in, what is your perception and perspective on trusting your gut and analytics? And how do you integrate both? There ha in my opinion, there has to be a balance. I mean, it, if you don't acknowledge um, the importance of science and data and how it can help, I, I think you're going to get steamrolled. Like I, I really do. And um, for being a, a smaller school with a smaller budget, we were ahead of we were ahead of some things. Like we, some of the the, the advanced arm care and and that we we've dabbled with it for a long time. Now, with that being said, I, at the end of the day, humans play the game and. I, there is time where the data will say this, like go for two, but you know that, you know, your, your running backs hurt and your starting guards out and this isn't going to work. So we better kick here. Right. Like I, I, I worry sometimes when I hear how, you know, it, it's not as clear. If, if that's the case, then we're just, we're just robots. You really don't need coaches. So I, I think you got to be really careful of, of being too reliant on one side or the other on the same token. Like I said, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to be too old school and we don't need that stuff, you're going to get blasted away. So 
it's just like anything else. There's a balance. And I, I probably am more on the older school feel gut, but I've tried to surround myself and insulate myself with other thinkers who can bring that to me. Cause I, I don't want to lose that. I, I don't have any problem saying that. I don't want to lose the humanity of this. So I'm going to keep being me, but I'm going to keep being educated, influenced by those around me to keep changing and growing as well. You're clearly someone who's curious. I mean, I think I even watched an interview where you said, yeah, my biggest talent is my curiosity. Uh, where did your curiosity come from? And, and I'm not just saying this. I, I don't want to be self, uh, you know, making fun of myself. I, I'm not overly, I don't, I'm not overly smart. I'm not, I don't, I don't really have some of the skills that come really natural to others. I, I don't have those. So I think for me, a lot of it has been survival. I think I, I, I have to be curious. I have to be curious in order to keep up, you know? So, um, and there is an obsession. I, I, I don't mind using that word either obsession of trying to get better and I want to be the best. And so I'm always looking for those avenues. So one, I think I'm compensating. And then two, I would say there's, I, I do want to achieve. I want to, I want to be one of the best. So the only way to do that is to keep learning and growing. Were there people in your life at a young age who also modeled curiosity or, or where do you, where do you think it came from for you? That's a great question. You know, I, I can't say that at a young age. I can't say that. I, I can just say I, th this, this sounds corny, but I, I found books probably when I was like 22 or 23, not early on, but I, I, I was the, the, the coach on these, on these buses, even as a player, I found a, the mental game of baseball and it, it changed me. And I started realizing how old, how I, old were you? When you I, that's when I was my, my senior year in college. Wow. I had a, I was first team all conference my sophomore year, my junior year, I became, I was in and out of the lineup. And then my, then I, I, I needed to make some changes. It was I, mental, Mike. Oh, it was, it was mental. mental, mental. It was, it was H.A. Dorfman's book. And, you know, since then there's, there's been many that have kind of have grown that, that field, but um, it, it changed me as a player. But, but I realized from there, I actually, Brian, I should have, I should have recalled this. Like in eighth grade, I taught myself how to shoot a basketball by, by reading. And so I started learning by reading. I, I can like find, I can plug some of the holes in my swing. And so I, on these bus rides where other people were watching movies, I would just read and read and read and read. And then I started thinking like, I'm getting a competitive advantage by reading while other people are watching movies, you know? So uh, I think that kind of, that kind of fed it. I started getting some results and it, to where I am now where I don't probably read as much as I should anymore, but now it's more, you know, I learned from Twitter. I learned from podcasts. I learned from really good conversations. So I think it probably started a little bit later in my life by, by saying like 21, 22. What happened senior year? I had a great year. I blew up. I, 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 I performed as good as I possibly I could. I, I, you know, I went from a guy that was more of a singles hitter to hit some home runs and, and really started figuring out, I, I started not uh, attaching my identity to performance as much as I used to, you know? And so that, I, that piece is so fascinating to me because you know, those that have read James Clear's book, he talks about attaching your identity to form habits. I'm an exerciser. Now I'm going to start exercising. I'm a healthy eater. Now I'm going to start eating more healthy. Um, but you just said something. I stopped attaching my identity to the outcomes or the results. Can you go a little deeper there? Yeah, you know what? I, I think as someone who wasn't, as I said, a great student, uh, I, I was I was a sports guy. I was my high school's all-time leading scorer in basketball. And and that became kind of who I was. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a real negative way either. It wasn't, I wasn't, I don't want to make it poor pitiful me because it wasn't that way. But when you, when you didn't perform well, and I, so I go from kind of being a big fish in a small pond to, you know, to being around really good athletes, really good players. And, and I wasn't any longer. And you're, you're in this weird age where 18 to 22, and you're trying to figure yourself out. And, you know, you start performing poorly. You start thinking of yourself poorly. So that's, that's how I interpret it, you know, and I started going, you know what, the real, you know, coach speak now is the real value is in putting the work in and then allowing yourself to just get in the arena and see what happens, you know, and I, I, I try to convey that to myself even now, like not to give myself that same reminder as a coach. Like I worry, I, I put myself out there. I write, I speak, I do all this stuff and my results will be posted on the internet, you know, but that's still not me. I have to always remind myself. And I do this sometimes, Brian, I'll go home to my wife and say, Hey, am I still a good person? Like I, I, I need that reassurance that I'm not always proud of, but I'm, I'm just trying to be vulnerable here that, that, I, that I need that. Cause you can quickly in this business, in any business, um, really define yourself by your results. 
especially sports, because it's clear to your point. You won, you lost, you won 12 games, you won 32 games. Like it's, it is black and white in that way. And so it makes sense that a lot of people would say, this is success, this is failure. And it's interesting. Like, I, do you watch Hard Knocks at all? Not, not in depth. I've, I've seen Hard Knocks, but not. So I think this year was the first year they did an in-season Hard Knocks. So they did before the season, they did the Dallas Cowboys. And then in season, they did the Indianapolis Colts. And it was fascinating watching those because they're very different cultures. Cowboys are flash Dallas, you know, big time personalities, contracts. Um, and the Colts, you know, you could see there's a humility, there's blue collar. It almost, they fit the cities, so to speak. And they, it, it like, that's the stuff I love to watch. Like I love hard knocks because you get guys mic'd up, you get to see them. Um, so it's just interesting when you get that perspective, I want to try to mic up your culture at at Denison and imagine if we were following you around and what would we see? What would we notice? Talk about some of the things that are, um, important to you and and your program. I think at the center of everything for us is, is the relationships and joy. Like I, I really hope that if you were to come watch us, watch, uh, watch us perform because in, in practice, sometimes it's not always going to be that environment, but if you were to see us play, I hope you see us play with big smiles on our face. And I, I talk about that a lot to our guys that this is our opportunity. It's, it's a playground. Once we get to the field, that's our playground. So I, I would hope you would see that. I, I, um, I hope you would see a, a, a toughness and a, and a, and a, you know, you know, one of our pillars is grit and we define grit as physical and mental toughness and the ability to persevere and overcome obstacles. Um, and, and not just the words, I really would hope you would see us lean into that resilience. And, and hey, I coach, think, yeah, coach, stay on grit for a second. Duckworth who wrote the book grit and Ted talk and Angela Duckworth, like the grit person, she defines it as passion and perseverance for long-term goals. I don't think I heard the word passion in your definition. Did I? No, no. It, it process. And, 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 that's, and that's all due respect to the, to the, to the goat of, of, of grit. But for us, it's more like the, the, it's, it's a toughness. It's, it's overcoming obstacles. So it's the world aligned, right? We're aligned. But I, I feel like with our, our, the young men we have, they're really smart. They're from great families, but if we can teach them some of that, of, of the resilient skill that is going to be necessary, that, that eventually you're going to, you know, have to overcome some setbacks. I, I just think that's incredibly valuable long-term for them. And I think if you would look, you know, with the people with in, inside of our program, we've been, we've had a ton of adversity over the last couple of years. We had, we had someone lose their life. We've had, we've had, you know, all kinds of things, but we keep showing up. I mean, the year that we went 34 and six in the regular season, I, it really couldn't have gotten any worse, but we just, we just keep showing up. So that grit piece, I, I would, I would hope you would see it. I hope we would, we would, uh, you, you would walk away and go, that's a team that's going to keep coming back. Um, and then I would say there's, there's, there's several others, but the one I'm really proud of is in, in what I think that is, I took, I took this phrase from Pat Murphy, who's a softball coach, Alabama. Uh, I saw him, I met Murph at the ABCA coaching convention and I, and we, we connected, he had read my newsletter and I said, Murph, you got to give me one thing. And he said, have you read the book, help the helper? And I said, I haven't. He said, there's a phrase in there called Mudita, look it up and Google this. And I, I, I did, and it hit me. I was like, man, I, I want to be that. Mudita, we define it as vicarious joys. Can I be happy for another success as if it's my own? And we really try to lean into that. Like that's something that's really important to us that I think if you play in a great program, which I, I like to think we are now, uh, the star revolves. So it, it's not going to be the three hitter or the, the Friday night starter. It's going to be the person who pinch runs or the person who practices their ass off and doesn't get very many rewards. But we celebrate other success and we really try to embrace everybody and create a belonging that I think is so important um, to, in any team. It's very cool. Do your players have to love baseball? I, I say, yeah, you, you, you heard me pause there. Um, I would say yes, to thrive, to thrive in our program. Yes. Um, I, and I say that in the recruiting process, I, I, I always challenge people. I, I'm very open in, almost probably too transparent in the, in the, uh, in the recruiting process. And one thing I say, Hey, we're going to do a lot of this. We're at a division three school. You're not getting paid to play. Um, you know, the, the academics are very rigorous. I, you know, people say, can it hurt their GPA? I'm like, yeah, it can hurt their GPA. Absolutely. We spend a lot of time out there. So I think you have to, if not love it, you better really, really, really enjoy it. Um, because we do it a lot. There's going to be a ton of failure. 
And if you don't, that time commitment and that failure will end up eating you up a little bit. That's what I would say. Why did you pause? Because love's a strong word to me. And I just had to, I had to reflect on that word and, and think, you know, are there people that could just go through the motions and be super talented and, and be effective? I think that is yes. But to really thrive in our program, to really enjoy it, I do think there has to be a love there. And what do you love about baseball? I think what I said earlier, I, 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 I love baseball. I love sports more than I love baseball. Like mm. I love, like I, I could have easily coached basketball. If my life didn't, my life pivoted in one way. And it, if it would have pivoted another way, I would be doing something different, but I think I'd still be coaching and leading. So I, I like the fact that sports are one of the last few um, no frill zones, like where it, like what I said earlier, like a lot of things don't matter. And I, I think it's one of the purest forms of of competition of team so that's what i love baseball just happens to be my vessel um so i, I can't you know it, it could be an, it could be football it could be bad it could be a lot of things but I, I love sports more than i actually love the game of baseball it's interesting i have a theory that there are some sports that draw love and passion and other sports that i'm not so sure the athletes love it and so i call them pain sports so these sports are gymnastics, uh, American football, swimming, cross country, tennis. These sports are actually very physically demanding. People forget tennis is just like very hard on the body, um, but swimming, cross country, wrestling, uh, American football, the physical demands on the body. And I think also there's an emotional toll that those sports take as well. Compare that to soccer, basketball, even hockey. Um, I think lacrosse, I think those sports are different. Those sports also have more creativity in them than those other sports. If you play tennis or wrestle or swim or run or play football, you have to get a lot of reps and then there's a lot of monotony in those sports. So I've found working with a lot of collegiate athletes that when I ask them, do you love the sport? A lot of those pain sports hesitate. And then sometimes they say, no, not really, but I have a scholarship or um, I've always been good at it or, you know, whatever I can make money doing. I've, I've worked with guys who play in the NFL and I don't really love football, but I love I'm supporting my family. And, and so I think you see also, athletes in those sports retire early, walk away. And the outside world is like, how can you walk away from that? But um, if you really listen, you can hear um, a complicated relationship with the sport. Andre Agassi's book open is a great example. I think he ended every uh, chapter with like, I hate tennis, which basically like the end of every chapter. Um, and he talks about loving it too, uh, as well. Baseball is an interesting one. Um, I'm not sure because baseball requires a lot of monotony, a lot of reps. It's not a creative sport where you're necessarily like free flowing. Um, it's more like close ended. You're not passing the ball. You're throwing the ball, but it's not creating uh, as it's not as creative as those other sports. Um, they tend to be longer seasons. Uh, it's in the dirt. It's I'm not sure where it is on that. So I'm curious to get your perspective. I would say baseball is going to beat you up. Like it's going to beat you up in a lot of ways. The higher levels, you know, you're looking at 162 games. You're looking at, and that's just, and people just think about 162. They don't realize that, you know, less than a month from now, if we get this lockout out of the way, they're reporting for spring training. Right. And, and only, <laughs> only so many people end in October. I mean, there's a lot of people that play in the winter leagues and they go, you know, like did. So, it, and where it'll get you is, is up here and the higher levels you go. I think that's true in any sport. When, when the talent gets equal is where it gets really, really interesting. Um, you can't hide, you can't hide. And that's one of the, if you look at football, wrestling, tennis, swimming, cross country, there's an individualism to that sport. Even the in football, a wide receiver, you drop the ball, a running back, you fumble an offensive lineman. You let the guy through for a sack. Obviously the quarterback, you throw an interception. So there's a spotlight that exists in all those sports that I think takes an emotional toll when we screw up. 
than deal with the failure. So in your sport, obviously everyone knows they're failure, 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 but an error, uh, a, a pitcher who gives up a home run to lose the game. I mean, the emotional, uh, the emotional toll that it can take from being in that spotlight in your sport is I think really tough. And we're talking about the highest level, but it, you know, I, I have, you know, young kids and my son who's now 12. I mean, you watch, watch young kids play baseball. It's really hard. And for my son being one of those kids, like the, uh, he, the, don't we talk about the spotlight, like walking to bat, all eyes go to you. Right. Um, you know, he, he's probably one of he's, he's, he, he does a, he does a fine job, but um, being asked to pitch is really hard for him because of the spotlight. There's, there's nowhere to hide. And if you don't love having a, a spotlight on you, it's going to be tough. And you mentioned how people retire early. I have a, I have a friend of a friend who's, who's a very high level uh, baseball player in, in the major leagues. And he, he's, he's counted down, you know, one more contract, you know, and then he's going to do what he wants to do. So there, there is uh, there's incentives at the highest level to, to keep going. But when you take away those incentives at the lower levels, including my level, sometimes I've had these conversations often with kids like, do you really enjoy this anymore? And, and I'll even go as far as do you want me to do you want me to cut you? Because that, that makes it easier. That way you can go home and tell mom and dad that, that Coach Deegan's a jerk. And, you know, you can put it on me. Have you know? done that? Have you done oh, that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. So a player comes to you and says, Coach, I just don't want to do this anymore. I want to be a regular college kid. Whatever their reasoning is, their logic and maybe they've dealt with injuries, whatever. And you say, Hey, like, why don't I just tell I can cut you. You you've yeah. done that. Oh yeah. And, and I would say it's even harder than that because it's more overt. They usually won't say it. There's a pride level there that they won't, they won't have that conversation. You'll see it in their behavior. You'll see it, you know, just, just arriving on time and not early Looking for a way out. Right? Yeah. Self-sabotage. Type they're, stuff. They're, 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 yes. They're self-sabotaging and you're, you're watching it. And you know, sometimes you look, you don't want to jump to conclusions either. Sometimes people just have, a tough stretch of class or whatever, but you, I've learned Brian to learn, lean into my gut a little bit more there. Like that's where my gut comes in and I'm very rarely wrong there. Like once, once I have that initial conversation, they're usually on their way out the door. You know, I, I don't, I don't, cause I don't go there quickly, you know, but, but once I start sensing that I've had that conversation, yeah, I've had it multiple times, not multiple times, but a handful of times where I say, why don't I do it? And that way you can save face. Cause I don't want you to, I don't want you to be it at odds with your parents because they've, they've invested a lot of time, money and energy, including sometimes choosing this school as, you know, because of that. And so let me do it, you know, let, let me be the bad guy here. And that's, and I don't love being the bad guy either. And, and that that's hard for me, but I, I do think it's the right thing to do in certain cases. It's interesting. I, I started my career working mainly with high school athletes and I would typically work with high school athletes who, didn't need a scholarship to go to the college that they wanted to go to uh, their family. If they were paying for my service could probably pay for the college. And I was always blown away by the target being division one. I, I want to play division one, whatever. And I'd be like, why? <laughs> Tell me why. Uh, Cause I get it. If this is a full ride and you're using it to get, you know, a free education, or if you're saying I want to play pro and that's going to get me ready in whatever sport they're deciding. But for a lot of them, they wouldn't say I want to play pro. A lot of them would say, I don't know. I just think that like, that's where I should go. So I'm curious for you, you've had a lot of success at the division three level. Why not go to the division one level? Why, why I'm saying stay at the division three level. It doesn't even sound right to say it that way, but why not go to the division one level or, or go pro. I mean, like go work in, in pro baseball. I, I think the, the, I, I challenge everybody through this process. I always say they, you have to do the internal work. Like you have to, those questions you just asked are very powerful. And those kids were lucky to have you because that you need to reflect and understand like, what do I want out of this experience? And, and I'll, I'll say some, this is for all small co college coaches out there too, is those terms are very loose, by the way like division one, 
or division three. Like they really are. Cause there are some division one programs that act like what you would think a division three program acts like and a division three program that acts like what you think a division one program looks like. And at the end of the day, the question is really, what do you want your college experience to be? And by the way, there's nothing wrong. If you say, you know what, I just want to be a normal kid, study, drink some beers, whatever it is that they want to do. Um, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's certainly what I did. Um, but for some reason, it's like, no, you have to fulfill your potential. It's like, well, why? Like, well, you can fulfill your, you, nobody fulfills their potential at 20. And if you do, that's not that exciting. You got a lot of your life to be upset over if you're going to peak at 20. I peaked athletically in fifth grade. Trust me, it's not that cool to peak at something early. It's just not. Um, that's what I always say. I have these conversations. I say, look, there's, my wife went to Ohio University, which is a fun, fun school. I, I have I have FOMO of that. Like I missed out there, you know. So I always say you need you need to do that work. I mean, the top, you know, 25 division three baseball teams are really, really good. I mean, and then if you cut it down even more, like top 10, like that's they're that's mid-major baseball, right? I'm not and I'm I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, they're gonna win a best of seven against Vanderbilt. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's really good baseball. Um, you know, the, the bottom half or the bottom. 10% of division one baseball is not that great. So and they're competing for championships. So the culture and the idea of what it matters and how serious they're taking it. There's a goal that you said, we have a purpose, we have a mission. We know what we're trying to do. So it's going to be organized. It's going to be serious. It's going to be disciplined. It's going to look differently than a program that may not have those values, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, for my, even for myself, like when I, you know, when I was younger and you're looking at career path, it was like, okay, but, I, I, mid-major it didn't it didn't excite me because i'm a i'm a junkie for the postseason i love it like i love it and most mid-majors are one bid leagues and you have to you know there's 15 teams you got to win your tournament to get in and that didn't fill me up you know um this does like this really really does and and there's other advantages of coaching at, at this level that i really enjoy but um i i think that's but that's why it's so important because look some people say hey i, I want to go to this division one school they actually open up at you know, you name it, LSU, and it would be really cool to play there. Awesome. Then go do that, right? Then I, I, I salute you. But if you want to come here, you're going to get a chance to play for championships. You're going to get to play meaningful games, all these things. But I'm not, I'm not here to tell you which one is right, by the way, nor is it wrong to go to, to go join a fraternity and, and have a ton of fun and, and get involved. And in, like, that's cool too. So I just think they, I think people miss by not doing that work and just saying, I want to go D1 or I want to go D3 or whatever. It's just too broad. It's not, when you hear that as, as an expert in the field or someone who's been in the field a long time, I almost chuckle when I'm like, come on, man, like you're missing, you don't, you don't, you're not asking the right question when, when you say that. So you're recruiting me. I'm some stud shortstop. I'm going to play shortstop for this exercise. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a stud shortstop. I say, coach, I want to win championships. Like I want to play at this level. Uh, I'm really interested in, in coming to Denison. What, what's your philosophy? How do you think about coaching? And, um, you know, what is it, what does it mean to you? What is, tell me about how you approach coaching. I just tell, I just tell our guys, Karen, we, we talked about earlier for, for me, when I have, when we have someone sit across from me, anyone who we're recruiting, I lay out exactly uh, a calendar year of what it's like to play in our program. Cause it was, I think it's a two way interview. I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I've been doing this long enough that I don't want to say I don't care if you don't choose us. I, I don't mean it like that, but I, I'm looking for good fits. So I, I will tell them that like there's a certain point of the year I say, okay, and it, actually we're getting ready to go into it. And I used your verbiage with our guys the other night. I said, this is the preparation phase. And I tell every family this, I said, this is the time of year you want to talk to your, you want to give an extra call to your son because it gets really hard. And I say, I'm not a yeller or screamer. I, I played for yellers and screamers in the past. And I wanted I, for a while, I thought I had to be like that, but that's not me at my best. But I said, but I do yell and scream. I do. Like I, I said, it's not like parenting. Sometimes I lose it for no reason. Um, sometimes I, I do it cal to be calculated, but that's not who I am. But we're very, very demanding. So anyways, I go through all this. Then I talk about our culture because I say, look, it's, it's very important to me that you hear this, even if this makes no sense to you. I say that, you know, I have four young kids and at certain times of the year, I spend way more time with your kids than I do my own. So I want you to hear what we're all about. And I, I say, hey, I'm a flawed man. I say, hey, we're going to play our best players. I said, parents think I'm wrong. The kids think I'm wrong. My wife, my son now will say, hey, dad, why aren't you playing so-and-so? I'm like, get off my back, Joey. The rest of the world is. 
I said, but, that, but I said, you're going to try to get our best. And then I talk about the recruiting process as it pertains to us. And I say, hey, look, you know, you'll get a pair of shoes, a roster spot and a hard time. Like from that moment forward, you got to go out there and get it. So I really just try to. And, and sometimes my our, our assistant coaches cringe. They, they, they're like, you know, like, like sell them up a little bit. But I, I won't do it. I, I don't I don't want that. I want people coming here under the expectation that of, of, of exactly what it's going to get like. And they're playing for a flawed coach. They're playing for a flawed program, but I'm going to give you my best and we're going to give you our best. And, and at the end of four years, I truly believe that that for those who do the homework in advance, they'll have a, a transformational experience. I love when you said, I'm not a yeller and a screamer, but I do yell sometimes. Yeah. I, we had a conversation during the pandemic about introverts and extroverts. And then I was listening to a podcast this morning about optimism and pessimism. And for me, I think all of us can be introverted at times and extroverted at times. I think all of us can be optimistic at times and pessimistic at times. And I'm wondering about, just like we can all be quiet and then scream. Um, and I'm wondering about what those labels do for us. Like if I own, no, I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert or I'm an optimist or I'm a pessimist or I'm a yeller or I'm not, do we box ourselves in? Because the reality is sometimes I need to be optimistic. Sometimes I need to be pessimistic. Sometimes I need to be introverted and other times I might need to be extroverted. And sometimes I need to yell and sometimes I need to be silent. And introvert, extrovert's a little more complicated because there's personality there and there's some science that backs up the personality there. But basically what I'm getting to with, and really with optimism and pessimism one is like, why is it that we have to label ourselves as one of the other? Why wouldn't we think, hey, I need to be pessimistic when it comes to seeing the doctor? Like, you know what? That, that thing that I feel right now, and guys are terrible at this. Like, maybe I need to go get it checked out because it could be cancerous. That's probably a good thing. The optimist is going to be like, no, I'm good. It's nothing. I don't nothing to worry about. And then why doesn't the pessimist, you know, when they're down to nothing in a series, uh, switching over to like, hey, we can do this. I believe it. We're going to find a way and we're going to be optimistic and hopeful and we're going to do everything we can to solve it. Like, let's, let's go. We can do this. So like, I just, and obviously I wrote a whole book about how you need more than one thing. But when you said yeller and, and Hey, I'm, I'm not a yeller, but I yell sometimes. Like if all of us can own that, I think it's a way more liberating way to go through life. And then we can have some agency to choose Hey, what does this situation call for? Does it call for optimism? Does it call for pessimism? Hey, I'm going to recruit somebody. I need to make sure that I'm giving them energy when I'm in the room with them. And I need to make sure I do that. I'm reading a book. Hey, I want to be just, maybe I'll go outside and read the book and be in nature. Like, I just think we don't talk enough about what is needed and when I went on a rant. Feel free to jump in, disagree, thoughts. What, what are your no, thoughts? I, you know, and I'm not just saying this. I mean, your, your book changed me. It, 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 it the, the shift, the shifting your mind, it, it gave me a framework that, that really has been powerful for me. And I, I didn't think of it. it. It almost applies in all contexts. The, the saying I'm not a yeller to me is a, it, I never thought about it until right this moment, but it is a framework for me to say, I'm not at my best. I know that. Like I, I've done enough work on myself to know I'm not my best when I'm the grumpy uh, confrontational coach. Other coaches can, as we were talking about Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll, like that's, I'm not saying that either one's right, but I'm not, Mike Deegan is not at his best whenever he's, he's doing that. But I also know my ultimate job, not my ultimate job, one of my jobs is to try to drive results. And sometimes it calls for that type of behavior, right? So coaching, there's just buttons all over you. And some guys need, need to, you know, and they need you to get him, you know, and some guy, and, and if I don't have that in my toolbox, then I'm probably not maximizing my ability as a coach. So I look at it like that. Like I've got to, I've got to have this in case I need it. And, and I'll bring it out only when I need to, but not always. I explained this to a basketball coach recently. I said, all right, you've got a fastball. Your fastball is intense, aggressive yelling. If you just have a fastball, you can be a closer. You can be a closer. Maybe you can make money as a closer. Maybe you can find a way for that one pitch to make you some money. But you can't be a starter if you don't have a change-up curveball, whatever else, right? I think leadership's the same way. It's like, okay, 
you might have a fastball that might work once you might use fear or even optimism. Like that might be one pitch, but we have to know who we are. And we also have to know like, what is our philosophy? How do I love how you said it? I know I'm not at my best when I'm typically yelling. That is, I need to be genuine and authentic to me, but authentic authenticity is not rigid. It can be flexible because if you acknowledge, no, but I also am a human. I have anger. I have sadness. I have frustration. I have joy. I have all of these different emotions and experiences that are also part of me. And I need to be able to manage myself to recognize a, I'm serving someone else. So what is it that they need right now? And B I need to be able to use a fastball, a curveball, and a changeup because different situations are going to require and call for different parts of myself to come out and to leverage that. And, and so I love that analogy and I use it with leaders all the time. If I could add one more piece of it, I will say this when, when I'm out of that, when I'm in, when I yell or when I'm in that mode and, and some, some teams will require me to do that because you use the word serve, like I, I'm here to serve them. So some teams need that from me. They'll need, they'll need that kind of, yeah, that intensity, I will say it's exhausting for me. Mm-hmm. Like, it, and as I was saying, I like to be liked. I don't have any problems saying I'm working on that, but I, I don't like being the bad guy all the time. And so that's when I go home sometimes. And, and that's when my inner circle has to be really strong for me because it's exhausting for me. I know that I'm ruffling feathers. I'm out of my comfort zone. And that's when I need to recharge in a, in a big way because it takes it out of me. Like, you know, be liked is such an interesting one. And once again, I, I work with, a, I work with a lot of executives. And so we talk about this sort of stuff all the time. I think wanting to be liked is actually an advantage more than a disadvantage, because I just think most things in life are about relationships. And so if you care about what others think about you, you're probably going to make sure that that relationship is strong. I think the issue that most people have is when they're making decisions based on the desire to be well-liked. So it's a subtle distinction, but I think it allows me as someone else who I think I care about what other people think about me. I think that's not a bad thing. I think it's when I'm making the decision only because of how they're going to view me. That's where I run into trouble. And so perhaps that can give you a little more freedom to embrace that side of yourself. Cause you even said, I'm working on that. I think, dude, you are a likable guy. Uh, I hope you always are. Every conversation that I have with you, I walk away being like, I really like coach. I think that's probably a superpower of yours. It's just not letting that drive all of your decision-making. That's where we run into some issues. And you can imagine me agonizing over a lineup. We have a roster of 37, like putting nine guys in the lineup. And that's why you probably, you know, to to unpack this a little bit, when I said it has to be about who's going to help us win, because all those things matter so much to me. I have to almost take that away from me because I go, you'll see me on a road game in the hotel. It takes me a long time to write the lineup because I'm agonizing over what the kids who I may have disappointed may feel, but I won't allow that to affect the decision. The decision has to be about this. So anyways, I've I've had, as you can tell, I've had to like put all these layer, all these things in to help me do my job at what I feel is the most effective way um, knowing some of my strengths and my limitations. You mentioned going up to the softball coach and saying, Hey coach, give me one thing that you all do. And then, you know, I've stolen that and embedded that into your culture, which I think is awesome. Is if I were to go up to you and say, Hey coach, give me one thing that you all do um, at Denison that you think every team should do that. If, if you were to democratize, you know, what is the sports, let's just college sports, um, what's one thing you think every team should do that you all do? For us, it's, it's, um, I think the, the, the easy answer would be relationships and I, I'm, I'm going to go past that, but I think that's one thing I, I would say our learning and our learning environments, our, our training environments are something that we agonize over as a coaching staff. And it's a, a, a daily um, focus on whether it's a meeting or practice or wherever where we're, we, we make that a championship type mindset in our minds as a coaching staff. So I, I think the success that we've had, the growth that we've had has been a long time of maximizing those training opportunities. And even if those, even and by maximizing, sometimes it's, 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 it's leveling down. It's not going as hard. So it's not always just the, the intensity or just killing every session, but it's being very intentional uh, ironic word on this podcast about, about our, our approach to those learning environments. But I think you do that enough over a lot of years 
you start getting better and better and better. And then your guys start expecting high level training environments and then they bring it to you. But I think that's, I think what we do best is, is that it's, it's maximizing every meeting, every practice session and being very, very intentional about everything we do. All right, coach, but give me something. There's gotta be an activity. There's gotta be um, something intentional that you do for yourself or that every year your seniors do or your freshmen do or um, and a, a team building activity. There's gotta be something that, that you've done and where you're like, man, like every team should go through this process. I wish that's something cool. I, I, I think one, one, I mean, one, we didn't, I use our budget this year, not to buy bats, but to buy books, you know? And, and um, so our seniors read legacy, our juniors read chop wood, carry water, sophomores read the energy bus and freshmen read training camp. So, and right, so what a, do you do with that stuff? What do you do with those books? Well, one, I think one thing that that's really important to me is I write a personal note to all of them. Um, so like, that's something that I, I want them to know. Um, once again, a little cliche, but they're a person first and, and a player second. And, and I, and this is right before holiday break. So, um, and right before we start making some really tough decisions coming up. So some of us protecting me again, by the way, there's some selfish motives there, but I want them to recognize whatever decision we have coming up, this is how I feel about you as a person. And I think this book is something that could help carry you forward. Now, what we do with it, we, we meet, we meet each, each coach. I, I lead the seniors. Um, and then we have each coach represent another class and they go over the books. And um, so for me, a lot of times, like when you first start doing it, they act like I actually have one kid this year, right? Coach Deegan, the date and, you know, like the, the class, like baseball. And I was like, cut that bullshit. Just just I want to hear from you. Like, I want to hear from you. But I think what we end up doing from those books and why I prioritize that over bats is I think we start speaking a common language, which is really powerful. Um, and I, I think that's that reverberates throughout the four years. And then um, it's so important to me. It's, it's more of a program than a team. I could go on and on about that. But that same language is spoke by for, by guys who are five, 10 years out from our program. That's awesome. All right. We got we got you there. Yeah, good. Uh, you know, one of the things that and we'll start to wind up here. One of the things that I'm very curious about for you is that in addition to being a coach, you also are an author, you have a newsletter, you have an online course, you do a lot of speaking, you do some coaching outside of baseball. How do you blend that? How do you balance that, so to speak? How do you find your time to be a successful baseball coach, but also have some entrepreneurial um, efforts that you undertake? You know, I, I, um, I didn't have the language for this until I was listening. I think I don't, I'm going to butcher the, his name. But I think it was Kevin DeShanzo. Is that, is that name? Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? It was your, it was, it was you guys having a conversation and I wouldn't have had an answer for that. I, I just started writing for an outlet and then I started sharing and then it started, I started getting some momentum from it. Um, but I didn't have an answer for it. But in 2007, I, I used, I wrote a journal. I used to journal. I was reading Brian Tracy's goal setting and it said you had to be very specific in your goals and name times and all stuff. And I, <clears throat> I wrote a, I, um, I wrote an article this spring or sorry, this, this summer um, saying I missed one of my goals and it resonated with a lot of people. Cause I said on there that I'm going to be a, a national champion coach at a division one institution by the time I'm 42 years old. Well, when Mississippi state won it this year, I lost my moment. And I wrote that and people loved it. They loved it. Everyone can relate because people have those things like by 25, I'm going to do this by 30, whatever. Everyone can kind of do that. But I didn't share the bottom of it. And this is the first time I shared it is right now. But in the bottom, I didn't, I didn't feel right writing this. I felt like it was self-promoting. But underneath that, I really wrote what I really believe in. And I feel like I'm on the pathway to this. It was about making an impact. It was about how I want my wife and my kids to know that, you know, all these things. And I want my team. And I, want, I want to be able to do that. And so where I'm, where I'm going with this is I feel like every level, like the first one, the main thing for me is to impact my family. And um, I don't mean that always by just being there all the time. Cause I don't think that's it, but I think that's where it starts. And then, then the team. And then from there it was like, okay, can I impact a little bit larger? Can I impact other coaches, business leaders? And that filled me up. That really got me energy. And then I have some larger level initiatives, you know, like what I do with ClearLearn, because I think getting education affordable to people is really, really important to me to get our, the game of baseball is becoming upper middle class in America. And there's, so I have some larger initiatives, but I think what they do, Brian, is they all make me better at every phase. And I, I think that's the language that I'm working on today because I'm a little bit clear. It's helped me 
understand. And I didn't understand. Like I, I've turned down some really good opportunities. I'm like, why, why would a small school coach turn down that? Well, I think it was what I was doing was I knew it wasn't going to make the impact that I thought I could. And the impact just really fills me up. And and I also know that impact, like, like making more money can allow you to have a bigger impact. And there's some things that I'm wrestling with there. But um, to me, that's where it all stems, that by doing all these things, it has made me a better coach. It has made me a better husband. And it's also allowed me to grow my network. And I hate using that word, but network and, and be able to expand my reach a little bit as well. Beautiful. If people want to learn more about you, what you're doing with ClearLearn, uh, where can they go ahead and do that? Yeah, so I have, I have a few things. If you go to my website, I have a, I have a newsletter on there that's free. Um, you can subscribe to that newsletter. I also have a podcast that we started, The Coaches Clinic, with a few other guys that, that, that's free. Um, you know, if you, if you want to level up a little bit, you know, there's the book. Um, I have a book out as well called My Life Lessons Learned Through Sports, Let It Rip. Um, that I, t- I share some stories. And then Clear Learn, right? That's that's an online course that revolves around culture and people development. And then the larger things are, are the speaking engagements and things that I do. But uh, a lot of stuff out there. I enjoy them all. And I just enjoy meeting awesome people and connecting and trying to make myself and others better. Social media, is there one platform that you prefer? Twitter's my best. If you go to, uh, you can follow me at Coach Deegan and, and uh, you know, people bag on social media. But man, I found that I found a lot of great friends uh, on social media. And I learned a ton and uh, so I'm pretty active on there and I'd love to connect there as well. You and me both. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Coach, this was a blast. Thanks for uh, coming on. And I'm sure we have many more conversations in the future at some point, maybe in person. I, I, that would be, that'd be awesome. I'd love to to break some bread with you and, and maybe some others as well. So thanks We're for gonna make that happen. Me, you and Joe Ferraro someday, right? Yeah, we'll do that it. Sounds good, Joe. We'll pick out the best Italian restaurant we can go to, Joe. We appreciate you. Thanks, coach. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. If you were to see us play, I hope you see us play with big smiles on our face. And I, I talk about that a lot to our guys, that this is our opportunity. It's, it's a playground. Once we get to the field, that's our playground. So I, I would hope you would see that. I, I, um, I hope you would see a, a, a toughness and, a, and, a, and a, you, know, you know, one of our pillars is grit. And we define grit as physical and mental toughness and the ability to persevere and overcome obstacles. Um, and, and not just the words, I really would hope you would see us lean into that resilience.